songs such as Christ is enough for us and then singing song songs such as because he lives I can face tomorrow I pray that we are now ready um, to dive into the word and uh, just just so overwhelmed just thinking about that in fact the choir sang through every storm my soul will sing Jesus is here to God be the glory oh what a what a message that is If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you and invite you to open with me to Ephesians chapter 1 today. Ephesians chapter 1. Over the last two weeks, we have been sharing our words for the year. One word anchored in the word that becomes our prayer for the new year. I pray that you have done that, that you're seeking the Lord in that way, because there is an importance here when it comes to a word that I cannot emphasize enough. And let me just say it this way. Every single person in this room has a word that will guide you throughout the year and throughout every year. And that word can either come from inside of us where self often sits on the throne and that word can oftentimes be me, 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 me. Or that word can come from outside of us, whether it be from the world and the message that the world is pouring on us or It can come from the Word of God that I believe and pray is reigning over us. Oh, that we would seek the Lord for a Word that will anchor us, that will guide us, that will correct us, that will comfort us. I pray that we're seeking the Lord in in that way and that we're realizing and, and making sure that the Word that's leading us this year is a Word that comes from the Lord and not from our ourselves. And let me just shift gears um, and and kind of change directions to where we're going to be going now over the next four weeks. We're going to spend the next four weeks diving into um, our mission statement, a statement that has been um, newly revised, um, barely revised. Um, This is the statement that you will see on the front of your bulletin that sums up our vision, our mission, our goal. Now let me ask you this question. How many of you noticed that it changed? Okay, two of you. How many of you even knew that we had a mission statement on the front of our bulletins? Okay, we'll go with that one. That, that was a, a better, better response. So we, we changed it a little bit. We find that on the front of our bulletin. It's not just supposed to be on the front of our bulletin. It's supposed to be um, a picture that directs us as a church. And the reason that we are taking this journey again, and I say again because we did this around three years ago, just kind of unpacking this, and the reason we're even revising our mission statement is because I believe it is vitally important that we, we know our purpose. It's vitally important that we understand the direction that God is leading our faith family. I think of my word for the year, which is forward. You know what? The reality is many people, a lot of people are going forward, but they're going forward with no purpose whatsoever. They're going forward with no, no, no mission, no target, no aim. And it's a, a sad reality. And so I, I pray that we would come to understand what our purpose is, but then it goes deeper than that. Um, Last year, I read a book that was entitled Simple Church, um, which really challenged me to think about how our mission statement tells members um, what is expected of them um, on a weekly basis or tell members what we expect um, to be pursuing in that way. And although I loved our mission statement, it kind of fell short in that regard. I I think about one of the the lines in, in the book Simple Church. It says this, imagine a church where members can all articulate how someone moves from being a new Christian to become a mature follower of Christ. So imagine a church that every member can say, yeah, this is, this is the steps that we take to move from 
A baby Christian is spiritual maturity. So what, what we are doing and how we have changed our mission statement a little bit, we um, now say our, the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way exists to glorify God by making disciples who will serve the world. So we exist to make disciples who will serve, who will impact the world. And guess where that starts? It starts right where we are. It starts right where we are. We want to impact the world right where we are and then go to the ends of the earth. And think about this. As a church, any church, we have a choice. Every single church has a choice. And that choice is this. We can either choose to be a church that stays busy with business as usual, making sure that we're going to protect our our programs and our preferences and make sure all of our sacred cows do not get torn down or thrown away. We can protect those things or we can be a church and we can choose to stay alive by pursuing life and the purposes that God has for us. So either one of those. So I pray, pray that we're choosing to pursue life and the purposes that God has for us. So in changing our mission statement, here's what we are praying for. Here's what I'm praying for. I'm hoping that in changing our mission statement and walking through this over the next four weeks, that God will call some people to stop simply dating the church to stop just dating the church, and instead we'll see the importance of the church. In fact, let me say this. The church was so important that Christ died for it. That's pretty important. So it's so important that Christ died for it. And then I pray that we would all, all of us, would give ourselves to the mission of the church. So in one idea that people, there'd be people that would stop dating the church, um, would see the importance of it, and then we would all give ourselves to the mission of the church, the mission that... Our head, our Savior has given to us. So if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to read Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. The rest of our time, or most of our time, we're going to be jumping around in Ephesians today. But we're going to read Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. I'm going to kind of walk you through it as we read it together, just so you understand all the he's of what it's talking about. So verse 22 says this, And he, meaning God the Father, put all things under his, meaning God the Son, his feet, and gave him, God the Son, as head over all things to the church, which is his, Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me read it one more time. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, as we begin this picture today of, of our mission statement, we want to begin with that first picture, God. The first Baptist Church of Ocean Way exists, God. Why do we exist? God, I just pray, Lord, that we would understand the reality of what was done for us to exist. We would understand, Father, what gives us as a church value and what connects us together today. Lord, do in and through us in this time what only you can, but help us, God, not to belittle your church. Help us, God, not to, to think small thoughts concerning the church. God, help us, Father, to see the church um, for, for what it is, to see the church as, as what Christ gave his life to, to build. And God, I just pray that we would understand that and soak that in and see our place in it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated.
So here's the reality of what we just read. If you are a believer, you are a part of Christ's body. So you are part of Christ's body. He is the head. We are the body. That means that we, if you're a believer, you have a living connection. There's a living connection between us and between Christ. Which also means with all his power, with all his authority, with all his wisdom, he serves as our head, as our savior, as our, our king, as our our friend, all of that is wrapped up in a relationship, a living relationship that we have with Christ. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to spend our time, the time that we have left, answering two questions that I pray will allow us all to see, number one, the importance of the church, but then second of all, our place within it. So to see the importance of the church and then our place within the church. So the first thing we're going to unpack together is what constitutes a church or Kind of a simpler way to say it is what gives value to the church. So what constitutes a church or what gives value to the church? Now, I found probably the simplest, the, the most basic definition of the church that I could possibly find. It goes way deeper than this, but Pastor Mark Deaver says this. The church is primarily a body of people who profess and give evidence that they have been saved by God's grace alone, for his glory alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is what a New Testament church is. Like I said, that is the basic definition of a church. It goes way deeper and deeper and deeper. We're going to unpack some of that this morning, but I want to begin by just asking that question, what constitutes the church or what gives value to the church? So in doing so, I want us to kind of walk through three pictures or three things that kind of show the, the value or the, the constitution of the church. So the first thing is this, the eternal plan of the church, the eternal plan of the church. Look back with me at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, which is, it makes up one sentence in the Greek. So all of those verses make up one, you're talking about a run-on sentence. Look at that in your Bible, verses 3 through verse 14, one sentence in the Greek. But what Paul does here is he addresses the reality that every member of the Trinity worked on behalf of our salvation. Let me say it like this. Our salvation didn't happen spontaneously. God wasn't up in heaven looking down saying, we've got to do something. We have lost control over mankind. We've got to put a plan in place or they will be lost forever. Jesus, go. No, that plan wasn't a spontaneous plan. The plan to save us, the plan of the church was an eternal plan. It's an eternal plan. Think about this. Think about the eternal plan as we see in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. First of all, we see God the Father um, planning our salvation. Look at verse 3 through 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So we have God the Father planning our salvation. And let me just say this. I don't know how to completely explain this. This is way over my head, but I do know this. God has taken the initiative in our salvation. You didn't take the initiative in your salvation. You didn't, you didn't bring your terms to the table and say, God, here it is. And God said, that sounds good to me. No, God took the initiative in saving us. In fact, God the Father has taken that which were his enemies 
and simply because of or purely because of his grace has turned those enemies into objects of his affection. This is the picture of what God has done. Think about it like this. Before the sun and the moon were ever created, before there was ever a mountain upon this earth, before one drop of water ever appeared in the ocean, before anything was ever created, God in heaven set his affections, his love upon us, purposing that he would save us, his creation. It happened before the foundations of the world. Therefore, think of it like this. Forgiveness was in God's heart before sin was in our heart. Before sin ever entered our heart, forgiveness was in God's heart. He set a plan in place to save us and to redeem us. I love how R.C. Sproul sums up this truth. He says, salvation is not an afterthought of God. Instead, from the very foundation of the world, God had a sovereign plan to save us. And he moved heaven and earth to bring it to pass. Isn't that good? He had a sovereign plan to save us and God moved heaven and earth to bring it to pass. So we see God the Father planning our salvation. Then we see God the Son accomplishing our salvation. Look at verse 7. It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In Him, meaning Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus came to earth and he reconciled us to God by redeeming us. Let me unpack that for a second. A lot of people think that salvation is just forgiveness. That salvation is just God because of Christ is just standing around waiting to just forgive us all the time. That's his only role is to forgive us, to absolve us, to pardon us. So every time we do something, we go, God, did you catch that? Forgive it. And we just move on about our way. And we think that that is the essence of Salvation, yet the picture here is that in accomplishing our salvation, Jesus doesn't just forgive us, he redeems us. He purchases us. He paid the full price for our salvation. We need to think about what that means. A missionary in West Africa was trying to figure out a way to convey the meaning of the word redeem to the people that God has sent him to. So he asked his African assistant to express this word redeem in his native tongue. To which the assistant said, we say that God took our heads out. To which the missionary looked at him mighty perplexed. The assistant continued telling the missionary that many years ago, many of his ancestors had been captured by slave traders, chained together and driven to the seacoast. Each of the prisoners had a heavy iron collar around their neck and as the slaves passed through the villages there was a chance that a chief might recognize one of his friends among the company and what the chief would then do is he would stop the parade so to speak and he would say to the slave trader how much must I pay to redeem him and so this Chief village would then pay in gold or ivory or silver and the, the debt would be forgiven and the chain would be taken off from around the neck. And follow with me here. Because of our sin, or because of sin, because of Adam and Eve and the sin that has been imputed upon us, we are all born enslaved to sin 
and sentenced to death. We're all born with an iron collar around our neck, and that collar is sin. It's sin. It affects every single one of us. Yet in eternity past, God the Son offered to come to this earth to pay the price so that we could go free. Just think about that. He offered to pay the price. Yet, understand, not just to set us free to do whatever we want to do. No, to set us free so that he could then bring us in. And that's the picture, isn't it? God leading us out so that he could lead us in. Bringing us in to, to the church. We see this picture of Christ giving his life for that. And then we see the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seals our salvation. Look at verses 13 and 14. So God the Father planned it. God the Son accomplished it. God the Spirit sealing it. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit seals the believer and serves as absolute assurance that God's saving work will be accomplished in us. In the days of Paul, the seal that it talks about here was a sign of security. It was a sign of a completed transaction. It was a sign of authenticity. It was a sign of a authority. Let's just step back and look at two pictures here. In Daniel chapter 6, a decree was given that forbid prayer for 30 days, yet Daniel kept praying. He was soon discovered and he was thrown into a den of lions. Daniel 6, 17 says, And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and a king sealed it with his own signet, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So anyone who saw the king's seal on that lion den knew that they better not touch it um, unless it was a power greater than the one who had sealed it. So no one touched it. Think of it like this. When Christ was buried in the tomb, the Roman soldiers also took a stone and put it in front of the tomb. And then it was sealed with the seal of Rome. And basically what it meant is this. For someone to open that seal, they had to have a power greater than Rome. Let me just pause here for climax. Thankfully, by God's grace, there was a power greater than Rome. The power of God. The power of God that broke that seal. And understand this, when you and I, when, when you and I became Christians, Christ put his spirit in us, sealing us. And understand this, child of God, no one can touch you unless they have a power greater than the power that sealed you. And thankfully, no power exists like that. There is no power greater than the power that has sealed us. Therefore, we are secure, brothers and sisters. That is good news for us always. So when all is said and done, these truths, the eternal plan of God for the church shows that God is more committed to our salvation than we are. God is more committed to the church than, than we are. Before we move on, let, let me just let this sink in for a second. Why did God plan our salvation? Why did... God the Son, Jesus, why did he accomplish our salvation? Why did the Holy Spirit seal our salvation? And I love that every time a member of the Trinity is mentioned in this long sentence, it gives us that answer. Verse 6, why did God the Father plan our salvation? Verse 6 says this, to the praise of his glorious 
grace. Verse 12, why did God the Son accomplish our salvation? The end of verse 12, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, why would the Holy Spirit seal our salvation? The end of 14, to the praise of His glory. Think about this. Why, why would all of this happen? For the praise of God's glorious name. There is a picture here where God designed salvation in such a way to put His glory on display in it and through it. The eternal plan of the church, don't miss it. But then the second truth I want to kind of unpack here is the, the foundational pillar of the church. So think about this. In our day, when we hear the word church, we immediately think about either a building or a location. So when we think about the church, if you hear the word church in our day, we immediately think there's a building somewhere, there's a location where people meet, we think of a specific place. Yet the church in the New Testament um, never referred to a building or a location. It always referred to a people. Either the total number of people saved or a local group. I mean, think about this. In Ephesians 1.1, he's talking to the saints who are in Ephesus. So he's talking to a local church. But then what we just read in verse 22 it says the head over the church, which is the, the global church. So here this, this picture is where we think in terms of buildings and location, the word of God, God himself thinks in terms of, of people. Even, even we have to understand this, that the true pillar for the church is not ever associated with buildings or even with people. The true foundation of the church is found in its builder. In Ephesians 2.20, it says Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. He is the one by which, on whom the church was built. Jesus himself says, I will build my church. I tell you, pastors spend a whole lot of time talking about different methods of building churches. And people say, well, what, kind of, what method of church, what style of church are you building? And I always say, I'm not building anything. Christ said he's building the church and I'm not going to get in his way. I'm not going to get in the way of what Christ is doing. It's His doing. He will build the church. So think about this. Um, in, in the book of Acts, Luke made very clear um, to show that everything that was happening from the beginning of the church was happening because Christ was doing it. Think about the book of Acts. Nine verses in, and Jesus is gone. So nine verses into the book of Acts, and Jesus is gone. He's ascended back up into heaven. Yet, follow with me here. In verse 24, Jesus is the one that's showing the disciples who should replace Judas. So just a little hint, every time, in the, the God, every time in the book of Acts, when you see the word Lord, it's referring to Christ. So Jesus shows who will replace Judas. In chapter 2, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit. The end of chapter 2, Jesus is adding to the church daily those who are being saved. In chapter 3, it's Jesus who healed the lame man. In chapter 9, it was Jesus who appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. In chapter 9, it was Jesus who appeared to Ananias saying, here are the plans I have for Paul. At the end of chapter 9, it was Jesus who healed Ananias. In chapter 16, it was Jesus who opened up the heart of Lydia. In chapter 18, it was Jesus who told Paul, don't be afraid of what's going on in Corinth, for I'm here. And there's a work going on. Don't let it stop. And in, in chapter 23, it was Jesus who stood before Paul saying, you will make it to Rome. Don't you worry. So think about this. Nine verses into the book of Acts, and Jesus ascends to heaven, yet all throughout the book of Acts, what is Jesus doing? He's building his church. He's building his church in us, 
through us and for us. Jesus is working throughout the ages. Therefore, understand this. The church of Jesus Christ has a sure foundation. It has a safe foundation. It has a solid foundation. It has an endless and eternal foundation. For Christ is the foundational pillar of his church. He is building his church. And get this, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know what that is for us? That's good news. That's good news for us. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then the last truth here is the, now the intentional purposes of the church. So follow with me. When we think about the purpose of the church, we can think of a lot of different things. But let me just kind of simplify it. To, in order to understand the true purpose of the church, um, the, the purpose could kind of be um, encapsulated with one word. And that word is ministry. But yet, it's kind of a, a threefold ministry. The church has a ministry, first of all, to God. Second of all, to believers. And then third, to the world. So when we think about it, we have, first of all, a ministry to God, which is worship. Our job as a church is to worship him with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, to love him in that way, to worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship is the fuel that drives everything else. I think of Psalm 95, 6. It says, come let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord, our maker. Or I think of 2 Samuel chapter 6, where David is worshiping before the ark and he comes home and his wife says, how dare you, David? How dare you act like a fool in worshiping God? You know what David says? Oh, you think I'm acting like a fool now? I will be more undignified than that. I love that. Because here's, let me get off my soapbox for just a second. It amazes, it amazes me that every single one of us in this room can go to a sporting event and we can lose our minds yelling at the top of our, our, top of our lungs, but yet we come to church and we care about what the person to the right of us or left of us is going to think if we bless God if we raise our hands. We're scared to death. We don't mind acting like a fool in the midst of all these people, but then we're scared to ever worship God in a way that might offend somebody else or make somebody look at us. Here's the reality. This God that we serve is worthy of our worship and praise. And if you ever come to me and say, I don't like the way you worship, Micah, I might just tell you I hadn't even started yet. I will worship even more undignified than this. Now, granted, I'm not going to worship in my underwear like David did, but I, I pray that I will worship in such a way that will, will lift high the mighty name of God. Because, get this, of all the ministries, the one ministry that will last forever is the worship of God. It will never, ever, ever come to an end. But then we have ministry to believers, which is we are called to make disciples, to disciple brothers and sisters. When Jesus gave the commandment, the commission of the church, it wasn't go out and make converts who you can add to the role of your church. No, he said, go make disciples. Go pour your life into other people. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul said, it is my goal to present every man mature in Christ. That's the goal of Paul. I want to present everybody mature in Christ, that they would grow up and that they would be the, the people that God had called them to be. And then we have a ministry to the world, which is evangelism through service. Think about it. The command of Christ was to make disciples of all nations. Therefore, where do we start? You know where we start? We start right where we are. But then we go to the ends of the earth. You know what we do? We love people. We serve people. And we tell people. We tell people. 
We don't just serve them and feed them and then send them home with a full stomach and an empty heart. No, we, we serve them, we feed them, and then we tell them that there is something greater than that. It's what we do. We don't just leave them in the midst of, of physical blessings. We tell them there's a spiritual blessing, even greater than all of that. Brothers and sisters, are we fulfilling the purpose that God has given to us? Do we see the value of the church as Christ died for it? As he is the foundation of it? As he is the center of everything that we do? Which leads us quickly to the second question. And that is this. What connects the church? So, first of all, what constitutes or gives value to the church? But secondly, what connects the church? And let me just say this very clearly. If nothing connects us then there will be nothing that will keep us. And this is what we see in our day and age. As people who claim to be Christians, they wander from path to path, they wander from church to church, and there's nothing ever keeping them anywhere. There's no anchors in that. In fact, it gets even worse. There are other people who claim to be Christians who don't see a purpose in the church at all. Instead, they say, well, my, my spiritual belief, my relationship with Jesus is private. It's not meant to, to be um, experienced in, in public. And I would say, well, read Luke 9 where Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, think, just read that and see how Jesus would feel about, about that statement. And then there are others, and I'm in this group, that believe that the church is vitally important for spiritual growth and for reaching those who are far from God. So let's really quickly think biblically about what connects us as the people of God. First of all, we are connected by the grace of God. We're connected. Think about Ephesians 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins, caring about the desires of the body and mind, by nature, children of wrath. Oh, these are two of the most beautiful words in Scripture. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Think about it like this. Everyone in this world, everyone who's ever been born except for Christ, has been born dead. Dead in trespasses, dead in sins. We're going to talk about misery loves company. There you go. Misery loves company in that regard. And just follow with me here. We were all dead. No life whatsoever. We loved darkness rather than light. We pursued our own pursuits other than the pursuits of, of God. And what we do in our day and age, we have a, a tendency to minimize sin. We say, well, sin is just some of the things. I, I do you know, a couple of things here and there, things I do along the way, but really not that big of a deal. And we have a, a tendency in our day and age to belittle and to really bring down sin for what it is instead of calling it what the Scripture says, that our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know them? Or the reality is our hearts are defiant towards God. Because of our sin, we're already condemned. I love what people try to do with John 3, 17, where Jesus says, For God so loved the world. Then Jesus says, For the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved. And people say, Well, see, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, so we should never condemn the world. But they're missing the truth. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Because the world is already condemned. The world was already under condemnation. That's why Jesus came. If the world wasn't condemned, there was no reason for Jesus to come. But he came because we were already condemned and he came to bring us 
life. Don't miss it at all. So think about this. What once united every single one of us in this room is that we were dead in trespasses and sins. But God. But God. So now what unites us as children of God is his grace. His grace unites us. I love what D.A. Carson said. He said, the church is made up of natural enemies. Listen to that. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for the sake of Christ. Listen, that's, that's the church. The church isn't supposed to be a people who look like you, act like you, share all the common things. If that is your definition of the church, then get a new definition. Get a new definition. Christ died for more than just for you to surround yourself with people who look like you, act like you, talk like you. That is not the reality. The reality is we were common enemies. We were common enemies who don't share a whole lot of, of preferences, yet by the grace of God we have been brought in. We've been brought in, and now we have an allegiance to Jesus Christ who has saved us. We are connected by the grace of God. And then lastly, we are connected for the glory of God. We're connected for the glory of God. Ephesians 3.10 says, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So just follow with me. God's design is to use the body of his son, which is us, to show the glory of his son to all of creation. God is displaying his glory through the salvation of sinners. And Ephesians 3.10 says he starts by displaying it to the angels in heaven. First uh, Peter 1 says the angels long to look into these sorts of, of things. But not only is God showing us off to the angels in heaven or to the spiritual realm, God is also showing us off to the world. You know what God is saying to the world through the church? God is saying, this is what grace can do. This is what grace can do. This is what my love can do. This is what my power can do. God is saying to the world, I, I save my, my, my children. I connect them. I unite them so that I might receive glory through them in heaven and on earth. Just think about this. Are we giving glory to God in that way? Is our unity displaying the glory of God? Is the way we celebrate his grace towards us, is it bringing glory to God? In fact, here's a good question to end with, even though I'm not going to end right yet. Do we really understand what we're a part of? Do we really understand what we're a part of? Paul Tripp, in his book, Instrument in the Redeemer's Hand, says this, Your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, a non-delinquent kid, it is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, and he wants you to be a part of it. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what we are a part of? God is rescuing sinful men and women, and he wants us to be a part of it. This is what it means to be a part of the church. But let me tell you what else it means. It means that having the fire of the passion of God continually 
fanned by other brothers and sisters who don't just care about their own spiritual lives, but they care about ours. That's what it means. In fact, the late evangelist D.L. Moody was once asked by a man who said, I don't see the need for the church. And they were sitting around a fire, and D.L. Moody quietly pulled a coal from the fire and separated it, and they both watched it die. Just think about that reality. Satan wants nothing more than to isolate you from the body of Christ. Christ wants nothing more than to bring you in. Oh, that we would see our place. Oh, that we would see the value of this church that Christ gave his life for. And we would see that we are connected by the grace of God for the glory of God. And may we live in a way that brings him glory. Not by our human effort, but by what he has done, is doing, and will do. All praise be to him. I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to enter in this time of invitation. God is speaking to you in any way. Do what he tells you to do. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you, O oh God, for your eternal plan to bring us into the body of Christ. God, we thank you that you, God the Father, from the beginning of the world, just set your love upon us. You made a way. You initiated salvation. We thank you, Jesus, for giving your life, for paying the ransom, for redeeming us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing us in our salvation. How secure, O oh God, we are. Lord, help us to see that we are connected by grace. We are connected for your glory. Oh God, may we see that we are a part of something much bigger than we could ever begin to imagine. God, you are rescuing a fallen world and you are inviting us to be a part of it. Oh, we thank you. God, help, help maybe those, maybe there's a person in this room today that has been like that cold that has been placed away and slowly losing their fire. God, help them, Lord, to bring their lives, that piece of coal, and put it right back, God, in the middle of your fireplace, middle of your church, God, and have their passions for you fanned by other brothers and sisters who not only desire, God, our own um, pursuit of you, but we desire the others' pursuit of you, God. We want to see other people grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I just do a work in and through your church, we pray, that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Just as I